In Nehemiah chapter 8, verse 6, it's Ezra reading the law before the people. And so there in verse 6, it says, And Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God. Then all the people answered, Amen, Amen, while lifting up their hands. And people say, Aha, see, there it is. This is biblical. We're just lifting up our hands. We're praising the Lord. We can't help it. We just have to do this thing. But what does the rest of the verse say? And they bowed their heads and worshiped the Lord with their faces. How? To the ground. That looks a little bit more like this. Do you see a difference? I just find that interesting. So getting back to this idea, what then is Pentecost? I mean, it's from that very word that we get a whole denomination. What's it called? Pentecostal. And, and sometimes they say charismatic, right? And that's this idea that we are filled with what? The Spirit. Let's look at that, if you would. In Acts chapter 1, verse 4, we're going to begin in Acts chapter 1, verse 4. It says, and being assembled together with them, he, this is Jesus, before he's ascended, because he spent 40 days, it says, the prior verse. And I'd love to hear more about what he said during those 40 days. He, Jesus, commanded them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father. And we looked at that last time. Which he said, you have heard from me. For John truly baptized with water, but you shall be baptized with the Holy Spirit, not many days from now. Therefore, when they had come together, they asked him, saying, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom of Israel? So they still didn't understand. And he said to them, it is not for you to know the times or seasons which the Father has put in his own authority, but you shall receive what? Power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Chapter 2, verse 1, it says, Now when the day of Pentecost had fully come, Acts chapter 2, verse 1, they were all with, again we see it, one accord in one place, Verse 2, and suddenly there came a sound from heaven as of rushing mighty wind, and it filled the whole house where they were sitting. Then there appeared to them divided tongues as of fire, and one sat upon each of them, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. You see, to the Pentecostal mind, they say, here it is. This is the gift of speaking in tongues. And that's what we do. That's what we practice. It's the proof, if you will, that we have received the Holy Spirit. They might even say something like this. We've seen the Adventists and you have some truth, but you don't have the Holy Spirit. Have you heard anybody say something like that? I've been to one of your services and it's, it's dead and it's lifeless and, and there's, there's no, well, spirit. We can never become Adventists because there's no spirit in your church. Have you ever had anybody say that to you? And to that individual, I say to them, Mr. Pentecostal, Mrs. Pentecostal, if you really want to be filled with the Holy Spirit, the Adventist church is the place to go. You think you have the Holy Spirit in the Pentecostal church. You should see the Adventist church. It's filled with the Spirit. You see, you never want to take something away before you give them something. So what is the infilling of the Holy Spirit all about? It's a fair question. For that, I want us to, we'll come back here to Acts here in a little while, but let's go to the Gospel of John. Phelan, John chapter 6, verse 63. I love to hear the pages of your Bible turning. If you forgot a Bible, there should be a pew Bible there in front of you. And we're in John 6, 63. And here Jesus says, in his own words, his own language, it is the Spirit who gives life. Who gives life? The Spirit. The flesh profits nothing. The words that I speak to you are spirit and they are life. So hold on right there. 
According to Jesus himself, his words are what? Spirit and life, or life and spirit. So the Holy Spirit inspired the Bible, fills our hearts as we read the Bible, doesn't he? And what happens in verse 66? It says, from that time, many of his disciples went back and walked with him no more. Jesus reveals that the indwelling of the Spirit was an understanding of his word and living by that word. And then a bunch of them said, now wait a minute. We're supposed to do this and this and this and this and this. Oh, this, this teaching is too hard. And it says many of them left. They departed. But friends, if you're filled with the Holy Spirit, you are filled with the word of God. The infilling of the Spirit, we're building a list here, is when you're filled with the Word of God, John 6, 63. So if you want to be filled with the Holy Spirit, be filled with the Word of Christ. Love Him and keep His commandments, and His Holy Spirit will enter your life and fill you in ways you haven't dreamed of. Let's go to another verse, John 14, 15, and 16, a few chapters away, still in the Gospel of John, chapter 14. Here again, Jesus is speaking, and we have these familiar words, but usually we just read the first part, but we want to read it in its entirety. John 14, beginning verse 15, if you love me, do what? Keep my commandments. Oh, you're such good Adventists. And we stop there, but what does 16 say? And I, that's Jesus speaking, will pray to the Father, his heavenly Father, and he will give you another helper. That's the Holy Spirit. We have the whole Trinity right there. Just show up, the Godhead. And he will give you another helper, helper that he may abide with you, how long? Forever. So Jesus says, if you love me, keep my commandments, and I'll pray to the Father, and he'll send you the helper or the Holy Spirit. And so we need to add that to our list. The infilling of the Spirit is also when you keep His Ten Commandments. So if again, if you want to be filled with the Holy Spirit, then let's talk about all ten of the Ten Commandments. What was that, Matthew? There's no 10% discount. Let's talk about the Sabbath. Does the Holy Spirit fill you on the Sabbath day in a unique way, perhaps, with the presence of God on that day? And who gives the Holy Spirit? Let's turn to John, or sorry, Acts 5, verse 30. Down to 32, it says, The God of our fathers raised up Jesus, whom you murdered, by hanging on a tree. Him God has exalted to his right hand to be prince and savior, to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are his witnesses to these things. And so also is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who, what? Obey. If we want the Holy Spirit, then we need to obey. We need to keep his ten commandments, right? And we need to be filled with the Word of God. All of those things are part of allowing the Holy Spirit to fill you, if you will. So if I'm a Bible-believing Christian with my heart committed to God, desiring to obey God, and His Word resides in my heart, I am filled with the Holy Spirit according to God's Word. Can God's Word lie? We looked at that last time. It cannot. So what is the evidence then of the infilling of the Holy Spirit? That is evidence that you are spirit-filled Christians. Is it a fire up your spine? A tingling in your soul? Is it raising your hands? Is it babbling something? I believe it's a heart converted to God. A mind dedicated to God. A mind filled with God's Word. And a desire to serve Him now and forever. So then let's look at this idea now that we started off here in Pentecost. What is then the genuine gift of tongues? I don't know when's the last time you heard of the sermon on gift of tongue, tongues in an Adventist church, but here we go. The gift of tongues is mentioned three times in the book of Acts, and we're going to look at each one. Acts 2, Acts 10, and Acts 19. And the gift of tongues is also mentioned in 1 Corinthians 12 and 14. 
So what is the genuine gift of tongues? It is the gift of real languages that have not been learned for the purpose of communicating and authenticating the gospel. And we're going to look at that scripture this morning and see that to be true. So let's look at the first mention that we have. We've already looked at Acts chapter 2, but we need to go back to this story. On Pentecost there in verse 1, they were all in one accord in one place. Acts 2 verse 2, and suddenly there came a sound from heaven, and there was a rushing mighty wind, and it filled the whole house where they were sitting. Then there appeared to them divine tongues as of fire, and one sat upon each of them, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak with tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now, there's a couple of things you need to look at that. First of all, this is the first mention. And there's a rule as you study Scripture, and I just like to refer to it as the rule of first mention, that when the Bible gives something to us, the first time it's mentioned, oftentimes it explains it, and then on after that it expounds on that. And a perfect example of that is Daniel chapter 2. That's that first mention, but then you have Daniel 7, 8, 9, and 11, all based out of Daniel chapter 2, and the law of first mention. Does that make sense? The Sabbath is first mentioned in Genesis, and everything then grows out of that. And so here, tongues is first mentioned, and it gives a description of what they are, and then everything else flows out of that. So if we read this very carefully, verse 3, then there appeared to them divided tongues. The word for tongues there in the Greek is glossa. And really means other languages. In fact, you can translate it that way, other languages. You can insert that word instead if you'd like. It virtually means the same thing. And in fact, when you go to Revelation chapter 14, verse 6, does that sound familiar? In the three angels' message, they went out to preach the gospel to every nation, tribe, tongue, there it is, and people. This is the exact same word that's used. So tongue is language, okay? So we could read it that way. Then there appeared to them divided languages as of fire and sat upon each of them. They were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak with other languages. Continuing on in verse 5. And they were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation. Don't miss that part. Under heaven. And when this sound occurred, the multitude came together and were confused because everyone heard them speak in his own language. Looky there. Then they all were amazed and marveled, saying to one another, look, are not all those who speak Galileans? I don't know if anybody here speaks multiple languages, but if you ever, especially if English is not your mother tongue, if you ever hear your own language spoken, you just kind of perk up, right? Especially if you're far off in some random tribe where there's a small group of people and you're far away from home and all of a sudden somebody speaks your language. Don't you pay close attention? Who is that? I need to talk to that person. They're my new best friend. Where are they? And so we keep going. They were all amazed and marveled, saying to one another, look, are not all those who speak Galileans? And how is it that we hear each in our own language in which we were born? Then it lists off all of these different places where they're from. Parthians and Medes and Elamites, those dwelling in Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya, adjoining Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabs. We hear them speaking in our own tongues or language. The wonderful works of God. 
So the Bible is actually naming these other languages. We just read what some of these languages were. Now, I imagine most of these people spoke Hebrew because they were coming to worship at the temple, but Hebrew was not, for many of them, their first language. And when they heard the disciples speaking perfectly in their mother tongue, I was a student missionary in Pohnpei. I've talked about that before. And on Pohnpei, they speak Pohnpeian. It's only about 30,000 people that live on the island. But many of them have migrated to pockets in the United States. There was a restaurant in Chattanooga. And we went to that restaurant one time because there was a bunch of Pohnpeians there. And it was just fun to, as they were waiting on you, because you could tell, you know, after living there for a year, you could tell which was Pohnpeian. And you just say, you know, Kasalel or whatever you wanted to say in their language. And they would just kind of, what's that? How do you know that word? It's interesting, and here God is using the gift of language to attract people to the gospel and also to add authenticity of the gospel to transform the hearts of the hearers. Isn't that like God to do something that we cannot do? To go far beyond in communicating, not to build up self, but to build up and edify the church. So God gave the church for two reasons, to break the language barrier for the communication of the gospel and to authenticate the gospel. The second mention in the book of Acts, we're going to go to Acts chapter 10, verses 17 to 20. And before I read those verses, you know, we go from chapter 2 all the way to chapter 10 before we see the gift of tongues again. Here we have the story of Cornelius. Cornelius is a man who is in Caesarea. We see that in Acts chapter 10, verse 1. He's from Italy, and as a Gentile, he's praying that God will reveal to him light and truth. Peter, on the other hand, is a Jew, and he's up on his roof, and he's also praying, and there's a big barrier between Jews and Gentiles. And as Peter prays, he goes into vision, and a sheet comes down. It has all sorts of unclean animals. You remember this vision? So we're imagining alligators. We're imagining rats and mice and snakes, and God says, go over there and eat that rat. And Peter says, no, I can't do that. That's unclean. Go over and eat that pig. No, I can't do that. Go eat that lizard. No, 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 no. Why would I do such a thing? Now, some conclude that as a result of of those verses that the Bible is now telling us we are liberated to eat whatever we want. And so at Potluck today, we're going to have snake sandwiches for lunch. And we're going to have fried lizard. And in the morning, bacon. Is that what this means? No, I don't think that's what this means. But notice, as we pick up this story in verse 17, now while Peter wondered within himself what this vision which he had seen meant, behold, the men who had been sent from Cornelius had made inquiry for Simon's house and stood before the gate. And they called and asked whether Simon, whose surname was Peter, was lodging there. And while Peter thought about the vision, the Spirit said to him, Behold, three men are seeking you. Arise, therefore, go down and go with them, doubting nothing, for I sent them. I have sent them, God says. All of a sudden, the light goes on in Peter's head that he had been thinking of these other people as snakes and pigs and rats. And this vision is the clearest teaching in all of Scripture that we have of racial harmony. That's what it's talking about. Look, all these people, they're my children too, God is saying. Break down this wall of racial prejudice. And then we skip to verse 28. Then he said to them, So Peter goes and and look at the interchange, verse 28. Then he said to them, you know how unlawful it is for a Jewish man to keep company with or go to one of another nation, but God has shown me that I should not call any man common or unclean. 
It doesn't say any animal. It says any man. That's the aha moment of the vision. That's what God's trying to communicate here. So Peter shares the gospel with Cornelius, this Gentile. But look what happens now in verse 44. While Peter was still speaking these words, the Holy Spirit Spirit fell upon all those who heard the word. And those of the circumcision, that would be Jews, who believed were astonished, as many as came with Peter, because the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out on the Gentiles also. For they heard them speak with tongues, there it is, second mention, and magnify God. Peter knew that God gave him the gift of real languages. But now Cornelius and others that are Gentiles are speaking back to Peter in a real language that Peter can understand. And Peter says, wait a minute. If God graced me with the Holy Spirit at Pentecost and gave me real language, and now he's given it to Cornelius, that then authenticates that Cornelius has genuinely accepted Christ. And he too has been filled by the power of the Holy Spirit. So God uses tongues in multi-language situations again between Peter, a Jew, and Cornelius, a Gentile, to confirm the gospel. Does that make sense? This gets even more interesting as Peter goes back to his Jewish friends and reports what happened because they don't understand. Peter, why did you go to some Gentile? And what does Peter do? Acts 11, verse 17. If, therefore, God gave them, the Gentiles, the same gift as he gave us, the Jews, when we believed on the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I that I could withstand God, saying that this gift is nothing that man can do or reproduce? This is a God thing. He was speaking in real languages, just like God gave us through the power of the Holy Spirit. What was I to do? I can't oppose God. Yes, it's the same gift. And every time in the book of Acts that tongues are mentioned, there are two different language groups present, at least. And in this instance, God gives Cornelius a real language, just like in the first mention in Acts chapter 2. He's given a language that's not his mother tongue, and Peter fully understands to confirm that he's been given the same gift that Peter got at Pentecost. Therefore, the Gentiles could be accepted into the gospel. So we've looked at Acts chapter 2. We looked at Acts chapter 10 and onward. Now let's go to Acts chapter 19. Now in Acts chapter 19, as you're turning there, you again have two language groups. In Acts 19, Paul comes to the upper coast of Corinth, and he finds a group there that were baptized by John but never received the gift of the Holy Spirit. And he leads them to Christ, and they open up their hearts. And we read now in Acts 19, verse 6, And when Paul laid hands on them, the Holy Spirit came upon them, and they spoke with tongues or languages and prophesied. They received the same gift of real languages of Acts 2 and in Acts 10 to confirm to the present disciples present that the gift of the Holy Spirit was not a gift exclusive for the Jews, but it was for Gentile converts as well. So again, we come back to these same two points. God gave the gift of tongues for two reasons. To break the language barrier for the communication of the gospel. Oh, I'm going to insert this in here, and we'll get to the second one. You've heard it already. This I found was interesting in Acts of the Apostles, page 40. It says, from this time forth, the languages of the disciples was pure, simple, and accurate, whether they spoke in the native tongue or in their foreign languages. This whole idea of from this time forth means they had this gift for life. Wouldn't that be neat? 
I was seen in chapel at Southern one time, and, and somebody in a Q&A asked Doug Batcher a random question about speaking in tongues. And he says, the Lord's given me that gift. And, and people said, say what? And he started talking about how he was in a, a truck and, and he was picked up by a, a, as a hitchhiker. And they were talking about the gospel as best they could. But there was this language barrier. This guy spoke, I think it was Spanish, if I have my story right. And Pastor Batcher's sitting there. Uh, he wasn't a pastor then. He's just praying, Lord, give me the gift of tongues that I may be able to communicate to this guy. And he says, and God did it. I started talking, and he started understanding, and, and perfect, he says, how did you learn Spanish? He said, the Holy Spirit gave it to me. God still does these things. And so while Pastor Bastard was relating that in this chapel at Southern, this has been years ago, my same friend that uh, came back from Pontepe with me, my mom calls him my souvenir, but anyway, we were roommates, and he's sitting there next to me, and all of a sudden, he says, I can speak this and this, and the Lord's blessed me here, and he starts rattling off different phrases, and my roommate next to me says, he just spoke in Pontepean. I said, he did? I missed it. He says, yeah, I just heard it. And what an incredible thing that God would give this, not to edify self, but for the communication of the gospel, and they'd have it for life. And I think that's the second point here as well, to authenticate the gospel. So the book of Acts is clear. Tongues is a real language, and even today, I think sometimes with our missionaries in far regions of the jungle, in this way. Now, oftentimes, I think he gives the gift of learning another language. He works that way, too. And so very quickly, student missionaries or whoever, they pick up on the language, you're able to communicate back and forth. But sometimes, when God wills it, he says, I'm just going to give it to you. And they start speaking the gift of languages. Here's another objection that some often have, but isn't speaking in tongues a prayer language? Not really meant to be understood. It's just that babbling. It's a prayer language. And God understands and this and that. Well, let me give you some pure reasoning. If the gift of tongues is babbling, and if the prayer or the person praying is praying a language that they don't necessarily know, but they say God knows, here's the question I have. Why would God give you a language to pray to Him which you yourself don't understand? I mean, think about that. Why would God give you a language to pray to him which you yourself don't understand? Let me say it another way. If the essence of being a human and being created in the image of God, if the thing that lifts me above the animal creation is my mind, shouldn't I be suspect of anything that bypasses the mind? Think about that. How could God possibly be honored by me offering prayers if I don't even understand what I'm praying? Isn't the essence of God my free will? my conscience, my reasoning, my ability to make judgments and to choose? Without that, what do we really even have, right? God is honored when I come to Him with all the intelligence of my mind. Somebody says, oh, we need the Holy Spirit as a prayer language, but wait a minute. The Bible tells me the Holy Spirit interprets my human language with groanings that cannot be uttered, and He is interceding for me before the throne of God. That's Romans chapter 8. Let's turn there. You know this verse well. Romans chapter 8, verse 26. Does anybody have blisters on their fingers yet? Good. Romans chapter 8, verse 26. We probably could say this without reading. It says, Likewise, the Spirit also helps in our weakness. For we do not know what we should pray for as we ought. Our hearts are sinful, and sometimes we say things the wrong way, and, and, and all these kinds of things. We don't always know how we ought to pray, but the Spirit Himself makes intercession for us with groanings which cannot be uttered. So the Bible teaches that God Himself, through the Holy Spirit, interprets the longings of my heart and presents them before the throne of God. 
Do I believe in tongues? Sure. I believe the Holy Spirit takes my tongue as I speak in an intelligent language and translates that into the language of heaven and presents that before God. That is the genuine gift of tongues. That's what Paul is talking about here. Someone might say, well, what about 1 Corinthians chapter 14? What about 1 Corinthians chapter 14? Let's turn there. As you're turning there, let's talk just a little bit about Corinth. Corinth was Paul's problem church. I've had some problem churches before. I won't say which ones. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, it says they were, if if we were to summarize, if we were to go through 1 Corinthians, in chapter 1, they're arguing and there's strife. If you go into chapter 2, they're not spiritual, they're carnal. In chapter 3, some speak of Paul, some Apollos, some uh, Caiaphas, and there's the division and arrogance and pride back and forth in the church. In 1 Corinthians 4 and 5, there's immorality in the church, and it's so bad that a young man has immoral sexual relations with his mother. By the time you get to chapter 6 and 7, they are suing one another. And Paul says, this isn't good. Chapters 9 and 10, they're abusing the Lord's Supper. And so Corinth is a big problem church for Paul. He loves that church, but there's this selfish, selfish exhibitionism. There is strife for leadership, for power. There's conflict with one another. And so in that church, in a multicultural society, with this church of strife and fighting and bickering and selfish exhibitionism going on in the church, we turn to 1 Corinthians 14, and we're going to pick it up here in verse 6. But we first need to understand that if this were the false gift of tongues in 1 Corinthians 14, Paul would have condemned it. But what we see here is not false tongues, but an abuse of the genuine gift. And so Paul is trying to control it. Paul is arguing for intelligent communication. So chapter 14, verse 6, But now, brethren, if I come to you speaking with tongues, what shall it profit you unless I speak to you either by revelation, by knowledge, by prophecy, or by teaching? Paul is saying, what's the point unless you understand it? Right? Verse 7, Even things without life, whether flute or harp, when they make a sound, unless they make a distinction in the sounds, how will it be known what is piped or played? For if the trumpet makes an uncertain sound, who will prepare for battle? So likewise you, unless you utter by the tongue words easy to understand, circle it, how will it be known what is spoken? For you'll be speaking into the air. There are, it may be, so many kinds of languages in the world, and none of them is without significance. Therefore, if I do not know the meaning of the language, I shall be a foreigner to him who speaks, and he who speaks will be a foreigner to me. So what was happening in the church at Corinth? People were standing up. They would speak a real language that nobody else in the church knew to demonstrate just how spiritual they were. So it's in the context of this church of strife and bickering that people are speaking a real language that nobody else knows to show how great they were because they had the gift of the Holy Spirit. And by doing that, they were hoping to attain power and influence, and I'm in charge of this group. Do you get the picture? Trying to promote themselves. And so this is the abuse of a genuine gift. Reading on in verse 12. Even so you, since you were zealous for spiritual gifts, let it be for the edification of the church that you seek to excel. Don't try and build up yourself or your ego or your power or authority. Edify and build up the church. Verse 13, therefore let him who speaks in a tongue pray that he may interpret. 
For if I pray in a tongue, my spirit prays, but my understanding is unfruitful. Here's what gets some people confused. Oh, somebody says, I'm praying in the spirit and I don't understand it. When it says my understanding, that's the key in this verse, my understanding. What does Paul mean when he says my understanding? For anybody here that speaks Spanish, there's another way that you can say my understanding. You can say it the understanding of me, the understanding of me. So the better translation in the Greek language is the understanding of me. It's the genitive case, which means this is possessive, the understanding of me. So it is not that he does not understand, it's that the people around him don't understand. And we see that bared out as we continue reading. Let's keep going. Verse 15, what is the conclusion then? I will pray with the Spirit and I will also pray with understanding. I will sing with the Spirit and I will also sing with understanding. Otherwise, if you bless with the Spirit, how will he who occupies the place of the uninformed say amen? How will they say amen if they don't understand, he's saying, at your giving of thanks, since he does not understand what you say. There it is. It's not that Paul doesn't understand. It's that those around are not going to understand. And that's the point that Paul is trying to make. For you indeed give thanks well, but the other is not edified. Why is he not edified? Verse 18, I thank my God I speak with tongues more than you all. Yet in the church, I would rather speak five words with my understanding that I may teach others also than 10,000 words in a tongue that people don't understand. Paul has just argued from verses 6 to 19 for intelligent speech. Let's keep going. Verse 20, brethren, do not be children in understanding. However, in malice be babes, but in understanding be mature. And the law it is written, with men of other tongues and other lips, I will speak to this people. And yet for all that, they will not hear me, says the Lord. Therefore, verse 22, therefore tongues are for a sign, not to those who believe, but to who? Unbelievers. So to my Pentecostal friends, I would say, why speak in tongues in church when it is meant for unbelievers? I mean, it's, it's meant to communicate the gospel in other languages. So the idea of needing tongues in church is false because you have generally believers here, right? So Paul outlines four principles for those speaking in tongues. And I'll try and go quick. People are already in need of that afternoon nap, I can see. 1 Corinthians 14, 22 and 23, therefore tongues are for a sign not to those who believe, but to unbelievers. That's the first that we need to write down. Secondly here, we'll go quickly, only two or three at most. That's in verse 27. It says, if anyone speaks in a tongue, let there be two or two or at the most three. And then the third part here, each in turn and let one interpret. So do you see these conditions of speaking in tongues? This isn't just craziness and everybody is just babbling on their own to prove that they have received the Holy Spirit. No, this is intelligent speech. This is organized. They're taking turns. There's interpretation. And then lastly, no woman can speak in tongues in church. Verse 34 says, let your woman keep silent in churches. The concept of women keeping silent in church is in the context of speaking in tongues. Did you know that? Why? Well, what do you know about Corinth? Well, Corinth had a temple to Aphrodite. There were a thousand pagan prostitutes that went to that temple. And part of the worship service in Corinth was ecstatic utterances in the temple. And so Paul's saying, look, if you come walking into the Christian church and you have scores of people all getting up and they're all babbling 
and you have godly women getting up, you know what's going to happen. People are going to think, unbelievers are going to come in and think they've just entered into a pagan temple of prostitution. That's what he's talking about here. He's saying tongues are a gift from God. Don't abuse them. It's a real language that God gives at times to communicate the gospel. If you speak in church, use it to build up the church, not to edify yourself. Only have one person speak at a time. Don't confuse the issue. When you have a thousand immoral pagan priestess next door. So this has nothing to do with women getting up in church in this pulpit and talking. That's grossly taking this passage out of context. So again, throughout Scripture, the gift of tongues is to break the language barrier, to communicate the gospel, and to authenticate the gospel. There's another verse just a few back that I think is interesting. We have a list, and we may not take the time to read this whole thing, but it says there's diversities of gifts, but the same Spirit. There are differences of ministries, but the same Lord. There are diversities of activities, but it's the same God who works all in all. This is telling me we're not all going to have the same gift. So if we're going to make speaking in tongues the litmus test, that goes against this verse as well. Because he may give it to you, but he may not give it to me. And then we have this whole list here. But the manifestation of the Spirit is given to each one for the profit of all. For one, the gift of wisdom through the Spirit, the word of knowledge through the Spirit, faith through the Spirit, gifts of healing by the same Spirit. Others are working of miracles and prophecy and discerning. And then we have here at the end of the line, if you will, to another different kinds of tongues or languages, to another interpretation of tongues or languages. But it's one and the same Spirit that works through all things, distributing, as I demand, as He wills, as the Holy Spirit wills. It's not about edifying you. It's about edifying God's church. And so here, if we go back to... We're wrapping up here, but if we go back to Acts chapter 2, the day of Pentecost, verse 6, and when they, the sound occurred, the multitude came together and were confused because everyone heard them speak in his own language. And verse 7 talks about how they were amazed and how they marveled. Verse 11, how we hear them speak in our own language. And again in verse 12, it talks about how they're amazed and perplexed. And so the Holy Spirit is being poured out. But there's one group of people that's not happy about this. Do you know who it is? It's the priests and the rulers. The same guys that tried to kill Jesus before. They're upset about the fact that they are promoting Jesus, that he's risen. The whole point was to squelch this thing. And now this thing is growing with more fervor. What are we going to do? And so they are enraged, trying to make excuses. Even verse 13, others mocking I believe that to be the priests and the rulers. They're mocking and they are full of, they're saying, they're just full of new wine. They're drunk, desperate to try and grab onto something to discredit this movement, this thing the Holy Spirit is doing. And Peter stands up in his sermon. He says, we're not drunk. It's only the third hour of the day. It's like nine o'clock in the morning. Nobody's drunk at nine o'clock in the morning. And people are hearing their mother tongue in their own ears. And they're saying, nah, that can't be. You don't talk that way when you're drunk. You look a little more slurred. And so Peter goes on to preach to these people, and it's powerful. And it shall come to pass in the last day, says God, verse 17, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your young men shall see visions. Your old men shall dream dreams. And on your men's servants and on maid servants, I will pour out my spirit in those days, and they shall prophesy. Verse 20, the sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the coming of the great and awesome day of the Lord. And it shall come to pass that whoever calls in the name of the Lord shall be saved. They're preaching the gospel through the power of the Holy Spirit, through real languages, and people are hearing it in their mother tongue, and they're being convicted and cut to the heart. 
He goes on and says, this Jesus of Nazareth, whom you crucified, he quotes David and, and, and continues on with this sermon. And finally, he says in verse 36, Therefore, let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. He's not just another man. Let me tell you about Jesus. And it says in verse 37, they were cut to the heart. They were convicted. doesn't say they were babbling. They were cut to the heart. They were convicted. And they said, men and brethren, verse 37, what shall we do? That's a natural response of conviction, by the way. What, what, what do I do? Verse 38, Peter said to them, Repent and let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Then it says those who gladly received his word were baptized in verse 41. And that day about 3,000 souls were added to them. This is huge. I don't know if you've ever been part of a mass baptism, but when I traveled to Africa and was part of one of many sites in Nairobi, the last Sabbath that we were there, there was 3,000 plus, almost 4,000 baptisms. Never seen anything like it before in my life. And we're sitting there on bleachers. I'm not even ordained at this point as an elder even, so I don't get to baptize. I'm just up here watching. And they have hundreds of people come down and Africans over there, they don't like to put their head underwater, but they're doing it anyway. And as the, the music plays, and as they say a few words, then they baptize and they dunk hundreds at a time. And they go to the side. And then a couple hundred more come down. It's all very organized. They must have practiced. And then a hundred more. And this is just so inspiring. But it goes on and on and on. It couldn't have been a hundred at a time because it would have been over too soon. I remember like six hours later, sunburnt in the sun watching hundreds, thousands of souls be baptized. And that's what happens here on the day of Pentecost when the Spirit is poured out. And I believe it's going to happen again. It says even in verse 47, the Lord added to the church daily those who were being saved. We're told there's an early rain. I believe this is it. It's, it. it's the rain that starts the seed, gets it going. I mean, if it just sits in dry soil, it's just going to sit. But the early rain gets it going starts to grow. And then there's that latter rain that brings it to harvest. And I believe the latter rain even now is falling in places around the world. God opens doors in closed countries. You read about it in our publications. You see what God is doing around the world. It's happening even now. But I think we're going to see even greater revelations as we move forward. The Holy Spirit is not done yet. Great Controversy says this, the Advent movement of 1840 and 44 was a glorious manifestation of the power of God. There was the greatest religious interest which has been witnessed in any land since the Reformation. But then what does it say? But these are to be exceeded. Friends, we haven't begun to see it yet. Continuing, the work will be similar to that of the day of Pentecost, as the former rain was given in the outpouring of the Holy Spirit at the opening of the gospel to cause the upspringing of the precious seeds, so the latter rain will give at its close for the ripening of the harvest. So I don't know about you, but I'm inspired to say things like, so let's finish the work. Let's go home. I hate to tell you, if you hear that, it's wrong. It's not biblical. I think I understand what people are saying when they say that, but is it really up to us to finish the work? Let's look at Romans. I told you we were almost done. We are almost done. It's not good to lie in church. Romans 9, verse 28. It says, for we will finish the work and cut it short in righteousness. Is that what it says? No, for he 
will finish the work and cut it short in righteousness. Because the Lord will make a short work upon the earth. We do not finish the work. Rather, we cooperate with God in finishing His work. And there's a difference. If the emphasis is on we, then the emphasis is on our methods. And our methods have not finished the work for the last 150 years. And I'm not saying we shouldn't do evangelism. I'm a strong believer in evangelism. But if they haven't finished the work for the last 150 years, they will not finish the work in the next 150 years. Again, I'm not saying don't do it. I'm just saying God is going to have to do something. He's going to have to pour out His Spirit in latter rain power. Because the reality is they're being born faster than we can baptize them, right? But I don't think it's because God's not ready. It's because we're not ready to receive His power. If the emphasis is on our genius to finish the work, our genius hasn't done it up till now. It's not going to do it in the future. If the emphasis is on the church finishing the work, it only produces discouragement and frustration. Have you ever felt that? God never calls us one time in the Bible for me or you to finish the work. He calls us to cooperate with Him to finish the work as He finishes His work by the power of Holy Spirit. Three angels' message is not fear God and give glory to me. It's fear God and give glory to Him. The emphasis is not what I do. The emphasis is on faithfulness to God and what He will do through the power of the Holy Spirit. Because the reality is there's more being born than are being warned, but God's going to do it. Zechariah 4, 6, we don't need to look it up, you know this. Not by might, nor by power, but by what? My Spirit, says the Lord. Friends, I believe the final events will be rapid ones. God has done amazing things in just short periods of time, and He's going to do it again. And the question we need to ask, am I willing? Am I willing to be used? Am I willing to let the Holy Spirit do a work in me and through me to accomplish God's plans, God's purposes, in God's timing and in His way? Because it's not about me, it's about Him, isn't it? Dear Heavenly Father, we believe we are living in the end times now. And that your Holy Spirit is being poured out. But we also believe that it's going to be poured out more fully and in a larger way than we have ever seen before. Lord, we don't want to be caught up in some charismatic movement. We want the genuine, the biblical gift of the Holy Spirit that empowers the gospel to go forth with power that is beyond us. And we want it not so that we'll be glorified, but that you will be uplifted, that you will be honored, and you will be praised is our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's Word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.